So ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the next of uh, Tech Stories episodes. Uh, today my guest is Blazej Kuzniacki. Uh, did I pronounce it right, Blazej? Yes, it's Blazej Kuzniacki. Maybe just a little bit uh, yeah, off, but it's one of the most challenging names for all of my foreign friends. So you did yes. it very well, Yanis. Thank I'm happy you. to Thank be you. here. Yeah. Thank you for... for uh, paying attention to this small project, but uh, I, I'm really happy to have you here on our podcast uh, because I, I really consider you as a rising superstar of tax policy issues in Europe. So we can see from from your uh, brilliant work, I, I, I really thank you on behalf of our listeners for, for the hard work you've done so far. It's, it's amazing what you have done, actually. I, I will try to list some of your work. Uh, uh, you are author of countless scientific publications, including your book on beneficial ownership in inter international taxation, and you received the prestigious uh, IFA Mitchell B. Carroll Prize for this. So congratulations once again. This, uh, I think, uh, is, uh, is a great achievement and uh, a great appreciation for your hard work you've done so far. Thank you. Uh, I will just mention that you are also working for uh, a big four audit company uh, in the Netherlands, and uh, you're also a professor in a university in Poland and studied all over the world, mostly in Norway, uh, got the master's in Bergen and PhD in Oslo University and did uh, some postdoctoral research in Singapore University. We'll speak uh, something about that as well. Uh, anything important I forgot to mention about you, Blaje? Um, just maybe two short things. One is that I was assistant professor at the Amsterdam Center for Tax Law at the University of Amsterdam until May last year. And I am a research affiliate with Singapore Management University Center for AI and Data Governance since July last year. Great, thank you. So uh, let's start with uh, your name, Blaje. Yeah, I, I read that it comes from uh, a third or fourth century Armenian saint. Uh, is there a story behind the name given to you? Did your parents maybe have some uh, relations to Armenia? No, I don't know. I know that my uh, grandmother from the side of my father, uh, she really liked that name for some reason. But uh, when I was born, she was already pretty old, around eight years. So I didn't really have chances to dig into it. Uh, but yeah, I, I know that the name is unusual. In any country is unusual. In, in Poland, you'll find very few people with this name in Czech. Uh, the, the probably the most famous equivalent is Blaise in French because Blaise Pascal carried that name and he was famous mathematician and philosopher. Interesting. From your CV, actually, I see that you have been traveling a lot, uh, living in Norway, living in Poland, living in uh, Netherlands, uh, some Singapore as well. Uh, yeah. If money was no object, uh, where would you like to live permanently? 
Yeah, it's a very good question. As as of now, I'm still struggling to address that question. It's a it's it's a question about deeper concept in life, the concept of stability or the concept of home in metaphorical sense, not like bricks and wall, but you know, when you can mm -hmm. like if you ask yourself in, in different moments, in emotional moments, in hard moments, or in moments that you think about about love, about family, what that would be. So the answer would be easy, it would be Poland. Uh, but uh, if I, if I, if you know, it can be bo boring answer. So being a bit more exotic, I would probably go for uh, South Africa, Cape Town. I was there last year in April with the University of Amsterdam, uh, delivering lectures on AI in public administration. Uh, and I think that the city is uh, is located so amazingly in, in around the beautiful ocean and nature is so close i really love ocean and time difference relative to europe time zone is zero or one hour so mm -hmm. if, if if you need to work remotely if you want to deliver lectures for to your students if that would be my case in the future that you know i could live in cape town and, uh, and and still work for universities or other institutions in europe and then thinking or oh, in different uh, periods and about different periods in life, like retirement, quote unquote, mm -hmm. probably Italy, because it's still close to Poland, it's in Europe, it's in EU, uh, it has very nice Mediterranean climate, the history, uh, I think people are, are open and warm hearted, a bit like Polish. Um, food is delicious and they have this culture of not hurrying up that much, so I think it matches well with the period mm -hmm. of retirement. But let's see. Yeah. I am open-minded. And IFA this year is on in Cape Town, right? That's so, correct. Uh, so it will yeah. be fun to go there. I, I've oh, never I would been, but so. I, I've heard so many good good things about it. So uh, uh, please so consider it. consider this. I think IFA in Cape Town uh, will be organized brilliantly. I know the organizing committee, and uh, I know that they are doing really really good job this year. Of course, I I always ask my podcast guests about their uh, hobbies so is, is uh, traveling your hobby or or something else uh, tra traveling is too much uh, embedded with uh, my work so it will be difficult to distinguish here between hobby and uh, and work you know if I, if I look at, on what I'm uh, I'm doing or in addition to work or what I like to do it is also a, a process of, of evolution like previously I traveled a lot to learn how to surf uh, which is challenging because you need to find the right, right spot, ocean needs to behave in the right way, you need to have right tide and so on and so forth. So it was surfing, but after around 10 years, uh, it stopped to be my hobby because it appears to be too difficult for me to progress, to have fun on a regular basis. So I decided to move to something that is um, apparently easier, which is kite surfing, because then you have mm. the kite and wind and you have more control in your body and hands than in, in classic surfing. So I do try to kite surf. I also love skiing. In less extreme sport related examples, I, I read a lot whenever I can, you know, read something non tax related. It is a big relax to my mind, to my soul. Uh, I think even to my eyes, because there is a different focus in, in your eyes, in your brain, when you read something like, you know, just literature, just just stories. It yeah. could be counterintuitive. You, you can say, well, you read so much for your research, so maybe your hobby could be something different than books, but I 
would say that they are the reading is one of my hobbies historically if i can put it like like that in high school and entire of my studies my big hobby was uh, rap i was writing and performing uh, for 10 years but before uh, yeah in in that period uh, there was no youtube uh, there was no facebook uh, there was no spotify and so on and so forth so people can know how good or bad are you and can either support or discourage you from doing this, doing rap, uh, from your neighborhood. So if you were not lucky and you didn't come from, you know, London or New York or California, where rap was already back then, like you could be superstar, mainstream. In Poland, it was like deeply in the underground. Uh, so after several years, actually around 10 years, I needed to take a serious decision in life, like how I can make money. And it was tax law. It was no rap. Would you like to do some uh, some of your best piece of rap? Well, I had that temptation. <laughs> Probably, if if uh, I got new beat, uh, we we caught a beat makers, producers, and rap, uh, more like up to date, what is trendy now. And I could, uh, yeah, I could have time to train more, like to have flow, to have rhythm. Maybe, but so much changed in 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 the in the meantime. Now rap in Poland is uh, is mainstream. Uh, rap stars uh, make more money and get more attraction and sell more tickets than rock stars or pop stars, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which was completely unbelievable. If you ask me, twenty uh, years ago when I was eighteen, when I was already making rap, that that would be the case. I would probably bet that uh, uh, we will be living on Mars before that happens. <laughs> that it may happen in future, but in the you know order of things and evolution of people, yeah. But that happened. Uh, so the competition is also, of course, very fierce. If you have big money and big fame on the table, then the competition is adequately gro uh, growing. Uh, so yeah, temptation is there, but for now I'm so busy with, with what I'm doing and I like it so much. And I also love rap, so don't misunderstand me. It, it was a serious love. It was not just a you know hobby, light treat, treated lightly. So if you love something really deeply, yeah. you 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 really like to treat it well. So for me, it's a big burden to now try to record something because I would need to put so much attention, so much love that requires so much time that I don't have it. But maybe. Maybe, mm -hmm. maybe. Sometimes I think I'm too old for it. But uh, when I see people making rap career uh, above 40 or continuing above 50, I don't think I am too old. And now the notion whether you are too old or too young for something also changed in comparison to, let's say, 20 years ago. Is there anything we can look up in YouTube or Spotify? Not Spotify. On on YouTube, there are two songs that I uh, they are not my main song, but I'm featuring there. So there is one uh, one part of the song uh, that I contribute to. Actually, one of the rappers that uh, became pretty famous after afterwards, uh, B I S Z, and another one is Score S K O R. You can you can write Score Anio. Anio means angel in Polish. Mm -hmm. uh, that would be one song. The title is Kwiaty, which means flowers. And another one is uh, yeah, with, with Bish, Anio Bish, B-I-S-Z. So you can check it, but uh, there were much more, but it was taken down uh, from YouTube okay. because at some point I decided to disconnect myself from, from that 
Um, yeah, I, now I regret that I did it. I, it was probably under under more like emotional wave than reasonable cold analysis. Yeah. If you wish, you can send me uh, the links. I will be happy to put it on the podcast. Sure. No. It's, in, it's in Polish, though. <laughs> it's so still interesting. But okay. uh, about about the books, do you have some recommendations about non-professional books? I read so many that it would be difficult to pick few, but I will try. Uh, also, I need to explain myself a bit because I have uh, not that well memory to names. I have more memory to shapes, to 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 faces. Mm-hmm. Uh, so probably 90% of book I have read, I could recall the story, uh, but the name not necessarily. But there are few. Like now, I'm reading very classic a book of Thomas Mann, The Magic Mountain. I recently also read another classic book of uh, 100 Years of Solitude. Um, so it, it's about the mood. Uh, I also read many books about self-development or psychological concepts. Speaking of which, uh, there is a very good book I would recommend by Viktor Frank. He is a Auschwitz survivor, uh, the, the man searching for the meaning. Uh, he discovered a new psychological or psychoanalytical concept during writing that book. and. Uh, which is, I think, teleology, something like this. Um, it's a concept in which if you struggle in life, if you really like are in depression or you are close to depression, uh, the way how to get out uh, is to find the meaning of life. And uh, Victor Frank uh, said, if I recall it, recall it correctly, that there are three universal meanings of life that everybody has at least one or can discover. It's a love, romantic love to a person that you meet in life and fall in love, like to wife or husband, for example, or love to your family, like to your kids, to to your parents. Mm. And third one, which this category is uh, is for all people that are not in romantic mutual love or they don't have family. They are also such people on this planet. Um, So it's like looking for a unique work that nobody can replace you. And in, in his case, actually, that last element uh, gave him enough strength to survive uh, Holocaust. Why? Because he was either aware or almost aware that his entire family perished. Uh, they, they, were, they, were, they were killed. And uh, at the entry to one of the concentration camp, he carried on his hand, he was 35, so three years younger than me, his habilitation, you know, and back day, uh, back, back, back then in times in 1939, 1940, you didn't have computers, you didn't have memory sticks, you didn't have cloud. So everything you produce as a writer, it was on paper, right? So he mm-hmm. carried his habilitation almost finished uh, in his hands and uh, Nazi soldiers, they took it and burned it in front of his eyes. So he knew it is impossible to replicate uh, he will need to write it again, and there is only one person in this world that he that could can do it. It's him. So if he dies tomorrow, in a week, in in a year, which was very likely back then, it will vanish. It will perish. So it was much bigger than his life, and it drives him towards uh, uh, towards sur- survival. And the last maybe thing about that book uh, is that. Uh, he said that it was punished with the death penalty to help someone that wants to commit suicide. So if you uh, help suiciders to not commit suicide, you 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 are both deaf. But it was not prohibited 
to speak with people. So he used his psychiatric skills and this newly evolved concept to help people to find meaning in life. So powerful, one among those three, sometimes all three, that uh, thanks to him, dozens of people survived uh, Holocaust and concentration camps. Indeed, I, I, I also read this book and uh, what I remember from it is, is that uh, this, this expression that uh, between the stimulus and reaction, there is freedom of person to decide how to react. And, and, and this also gave him a, a sort of meaning to many of uh, uh, situations where he was uh, tragically involved. Yes, um, it's, it's a bit connected with meditation in Buddhist, right? Because meditation mm-hmm. teaches you to not be that reactive, to give yourself even tiny space, a second or two of mm-hmm. breath and not react immediately. Yeah. yeah. In one of your uh, LinkedIn posts, I saw a recommendation about book One Thing. You mentioned this is also a book that has helped you in life. What is your one thing uh, that has uh, helped you from that book? Yeah, back then when I connect the dogs, when was it? It was 2013, uh, so I was much younger than now. And uh, yeah, one thing, I, I, I think that it's uh, international tax law in many dimensions related to uncovering truth behind uh, in-depth analysis, behind all politicization that we now observe. And the notion of science, that's my one thing, notion of uh, constant, never-ending learning and and with that you know comes humility sometimes comes also arrogance a bit if you if you are you know if you are feeling that you are too strong but science is is science is always dragging you back to be humble because you know it sounds you know it's a cliche to say the more i know the more i know that i don't know socrates and einstein was using by paraphrasing this notion but that's very true so stay humble and uh, yeah, and uh, in my case, that one thing is a scientific method in life of a constant learning in life. But the one thing boiling down to something precise, more materialized in life, is uh, is is around uh, research research around tax law, international, especially international tax law. So agnostic, not related to one country. And you say, oh, I am Polish tax expert or I am Swedish tax expert, whatever that would drag me to that jurisdiction most likely and i as you mentioned before it seems that i like traveling i do like so if you can combine uncovering word with uncovering truth by your research method that's i think it's a it's a it's one of the beauties that you can have in life and i i i think i managed to do it for which i am very grateful but you're also a tax practitioner at uh, pwc so Whichever you like uh, more, being academic or practitioner. Maybe it would be easy to distinguish if if my roles were super different as some people have. But I am fortunate enough to have uh, a very nice colleague, very, very nice, uh, you know, people that are senior to me. And uh, I do believe that they benefit from my academic mind for uh, for going always deeper and trying to see differently things. Um, it is very helpful in practice if you deal with very big projects, very difficult projects, projects that require from you not one day or one week or one month, but sometimes six months or even a year or more, like longer in horizon. Global tax policy is a perfect field because, as you know, big changes 
it, it takes time and uh, and you need to have this resilience to different changes that uh, you know one concept becomes outdated although you put so much efforts to let's say write about it or you know otherwise research it so i enjoy both on the side of practice i enjoy most uh, dispute prevention and resolution so you may see that in my latest publications they are almost all about about dispute resolution and prevention like that uh, Lone Star versus Korea, South Korea case, uh, Khan versus India, um, prospect for you know big controversies that may arise out of Pillar 2 implementation. Yeah, so the, the part regarding real life fights, so to speak, between different actors is fascinating because in addition to academic approach, psychology matters a lot how you approach client how you speak with him also how you approach the counterparty uh, being tax authorities or some other institutions of state to not have just a cold academic analysis but to understand that there are policy interests behind it that are much bigger than the technical analysis and you, when you combine both the in-depth academic technical analysis with um, aspects regarding business uh, investments and policy uh, reasons of you know different countries then i think it's really really interesting combination and and then I, it, this is the way how uh, academic my academic side benefits my practical side and vice versa and mm. and they are they are in harmony rather than you know they are not cannibalizing themselves mm. or contradict themselves. The, the, the way how I see it, how also PwC helps me to uh, evolve is to uh, create a, a symbiotic relation between my work for, for, for PwC as practitioner and my work as academic. Sounds absolutely great. But uh, can you give an example of this uh, tax policy issue you normally solve for a client? What does it mean that you are more into some lobbying projects or or more uh, helping some countries to adjust some uh, tax policy issues? No, none of this. I mean, we, we shy away from lobbying. I never mm. take part in any lobbying on my side. What, what I meant by, by working for clients and client side on on PwC tax policy, it's it's nothing you know much different than what I do as academic. If if there is new I no new policy idea to name it uh, Anshel directive, you can read my articles in Intertax about Anshel. When was Safe? You can read my article about Safe in in ITA International Tax Studies Journal of of the IBFD, and that's what I think academically. There's nothing different that I say to my colleagues uh, in PwC or other stakeholders that it can be that th those projects are not necessarily proportional, for example, and then you can say, oh, it's boring. It's not practice. What does it mean proportional? When I, well, I think that if something is not proportional, it's massively important. Legally, proportionality is general principle of law under Article 38, uh, Paragraph 1, Letter C of the International Court of Justice Statute which means that it's one of the sources of international law and, and it should be applied by every court in every country in the world uh, so it's very powerful and if you look on policy proposal proposals that are not proportionate they are almost always either abandoned or they trigger uh, so many troubles 
that could be avoided if principle of proportionality would be treated seriously. So I, I, I do not advise countries. Uh, I do not point that this policy option is the best for you. Uh, it's more like I prepare uh, a robust uh, analysis based on scientific method, not driven by commercial outcomes, but based on scientific method, uh, as objective as possible, as substantiated with evidence as possible. And sometimes you have very little evidence. You need to create that evidence, but by your body of work. And stakeholders may pick one of the options, but as far as I am concerned, we are not saying that this or that is, is, is the best option for you. They are like, let's say, four options that are out there and uh, each of them has pros and cons and every stakeholder needs to look closely by themselves and decide what, what is the best. That seems to be some kind of uh, trend. Uh, tax people need to learn tax policy issues uh, correctly. And, and that's exactly what uh, Pascal Sediment uh, told in the previous tax stories episode that he's he's trying to teach this uh, so the tax professionals and, and companies can come to better decisions on, on how to make business correctly. So, that, um, that's that's good point. But if I may comment on it a bit, a bit uh, is that uh, you know because policy is close to politicization, and you can see that by pillar two, also before BEPS, the politicization of taxation on global arena becomes so huge. So to to my mind, coming back to the concept of proportionality, disproportionately huge. So when you teach uh, tax advisors, when you teach uh, representatives of states and students that poly tax policy is important, you need to also teach them that tax policy is not a law. It's not legally binding. You may have very strong policy reasons to pull interpretation and thus application of certain legal provision or provisions in, in a given way. But if the wording of provisions, their uh, context and purpose does not support it, that you are using policy to create and apply law that is not existing, that's dangerous. An example of pillar two is, is uh, here, like, you know, coming to my mind, because even many scholars use the phrase international agreement, right? Or global agreement. Pillar two is global mm -hmm. agreement, is international agreement. When, when you look into dictionary meaning, ordinary meaning of agreement in the context of international, and then together this phraseological, you know, international agreement is not international agreement because international agreement requires to follow domestic constitutional legislative process that usually requires ratification by parliament uh, in a qualified way by the qualified majority in almost every democratic constitution around the world uh, and pillar two is meant to be implemented by means of domestic law there was political agreement so the question, you know, to you would be, to Pascal, why they forget to add political agreement? Because political clearly sends the signal. It's not international agreement. It's political agreement in, in, in a big group of countries, right? Now more than 400, 140 inclusive framework, but it's only political agreement. But it went so far in the perception of stakeholders to treat it as international agreement that I'm sure you will find uh, courts, you will find, you know, very 
uh, reputable people mixing that together and saying, well, if so many countries politically agreed to do something, they cannot now withdraw, meaning that there is no distinction, almost de facto, between policy, political agreement, and law, international agreement, in, in, mm. in the normal mm. sense, yeah, like a tax treaty, bilateral tax treaty, or multilateral treaties. So I think that's then it's yes, you are absolutely right. There is a increasing trend to educate more and to treat more seriously tax policy. But we need to be careful with that. What I observe is that we go overboard and we start treating policy as if it was law or even worse, as if it is more important than law. You can forget the law, you can forget legal interpretation. What is legal interpretation? More important is to uh, is to meet the policy objectives, and it's terrifying because it's against the rule of law. If we stick for a moment with what uh, Pascal said, he said he's not worried about uh, companies under 750 million euro limit, as uh, they bring just uh, around 15 percent of the global profits. I know you you have studied this uh, topic in depth as well. Uh, are offshore companies, uh, not only the EU blacklisted offshore companies, but uh, in general, is it a threat to the developing countries like Poland and Latvia? Will this pillar to be game changer in that respect? And if not, how to fight this uh, offshores properly? Because it uh, seems to yeah. still to stick as a problem. I, I would rather not use the names of the countries because, you know, I think that Poland may feel offended if you say that they are developing. I think that we are developing, maybe. <laughs> sorry, sir. <laughs> no, 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 no worries. Current government is more, more li liberal, so I don't expect any repercussions towards that statement, Yanis. No, just joking. You know, I, I think that IMF has even more granular categorization. They say low income developing countries, uh, mi middle income. Uh, econo emerging economies, emerging economies, and advanced economies. Yeah, so it's. Mm -hmm. I think it's it's uh, it's 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 better to to follow that IMF categorization. But just to be to be you know for the simplicity reasons, uh, let's stick to developing and, and developed. But I am forced to do it for simplicity reasons. Not in my paper, I am not doing this. So that's a funny coincidence in a way that you ask that question because I am working on paper now which uh, was not intended to focus at all on, on on that question whether pillar two treats in a in a fair way developing and de developed states and what does it mean pillar two treats right uh, you mean the wording of model rules the uh, what rules the oecd model the the eu directive uh, do you also include oecd guidance yeah, and and so on and, and what elements may may be considered as not fair versus fair so I'm still uh, uh, need to rewrite quite a lot. Once it will be ready, I, I will share with you. But my current observation is, is that uh, Pillar 2 is not treating fairly uh, rich, high or high income advanced economies. You can call them developed countries and low income or mid income, either developing states or uh, emerging economies. And there are many reasons for, for this. So it's not only about 750 million threshold, uh, plus that threshold is, uh, is, is global threshold. And as you know, Pillar 2 is, is, uh, consists of 
different rules, QQD, MTT, IRR, UTPR, STTR, also most recently, um, which is not yet enforced. And uh, it may happen that the multinational group that is globally in plus uh, will be disproportionately negatively affected in certain regions in the world. If it happens that those regions represent low-income developing countries or even middle-income developing countries, they may decide to relocate their presence to countries that they will be not that negatively affected. If all things considered, they may have uh, labor force, natural resources, infrastructure, and political stability even better than there, right? So for some reason, they decided to be in those countries, to invest in those countries, despite uh, some risks that they don't have elsewhere. Uh, depending on the sector, depending on, on the activity, they may take the decision to relocate easily or not. They may take the decision solely because of Pillar 2. If that happens, that they take the decision to leave the country solely because of Pillar 2, because local tax incentives, that by the way required from them to have significant economic presence, uh, will be neutralized. Why? Because substance-based income uh, exclusion maximally, which means that year, the, the year number one of uh, Pillar 2 being in force, will give you maximum 37% of carve out of your uh, Pillar 2 profits. Maximum 37%. So if your business in a, in a developing state is based on full exhaustion of substance-based income exclusion, which means that it has a lot of headcounts, uh, a lot of uh, like real classical substance, greenfield projects, contribution to infrastructure, to economic growth, still 43% of those profits, if taxed below 15%, will be pulled by a different country, maybe high-income developed country. So how fair is it? Who, who thought about that before? To, 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 it could be easily, easily you know, adjusted by adding a rule that in such cases, a pillar two will not apply, at least for a given period, until that state become from low income, at least medium income. Look at STTR mechanism. It works exactly like that. That a developing state has a privileged position, privileged quote unquote, towards developed states in inclusive framework, because if they ask other states to include STTR via annex in their tax treaties, they cannot refuse. And there is also transitionary period, I think, in Annex 5 to STTR MLI saying that if developing state, according to the calculation of World Bank, you know, however OECD will make it more precise, if developing states cease to be developing and start to be developed, then STTR will stop to apply and will reapply again. If developed states comes back, something happens bad in economy and, and becomes again developing. So the mechanism is already there. You could do the same with the application of QDMTT versus IRR and UPTR, saying IRR and UTPR cannot be applied by developed states, high income states, towards uh, level of taxation uh, on uh, constituent entities in low income states, because it will be unfair towards low income states. 
if there is, and it can be another condition, uh, if there is full exhaustion of SB, uh, SB, i.e. full economic presence, because you have no harmful tax competition there at all. If you look at BEP Section 5, EU conduct of uh, business also, you, you, you don't have harmful tax competition towards EU. You have only mm, mechanical threshold, very formal threshold of 15% being decisive here, right? This, despite of the situation of a country, despite of its economy, only STTR reflects the differences between states. Yeah, because it was added very late and also because uh, SCTR was really most likely the only element of Pillar 2 that developing states considered clearly for their benefit. Clearly, I'm not saying that Pillar 2 is not for benefit of developing states, but there are elements of Pillar 2 that, in my view, should be improved for, for the benefit of global uh, level, level playing field. Do you think those companies that are falling outside the scope of 750 million global turnover and that's pillar two, uh, are the offshores uh, still a problem? You know, if, if you pick a country in which you don't have many ultimate parent entities, uh, so you will not apply IRR. And when you have offshore entities in typical tax havens, let's say, they usually not have any constituent entities back in countries that we think of. Uh, so I don't think that such countries will benefit from Pillar 2. It may be either close to zero or even in minus if you consider compliance cost on the side of both tax authorities and taxpayers. Maybe, Yanis, you recall the research of Spengel and others, the German scholars, uh, published last year in German language in which they calculated the cost of Pillar 2 implementation during the first year in Germany, yeah, one of the most powerful, richest countries in the world, I think G7. Uh, mm. And they calculated that uh, cost of implementation by tax authorities will be so enormous that they will equal or exceed any potential gains from, from taxation in Germany. And Germany has really many UPEs that are uh, present yeah. around the world. Yeah, this will be definitely a nightmare for many companies. But uh, let's switch topic now, now to uh, disputes. You mentioned uh, you, you have been working with uh, dispute issues uh, quite a lot. Do you, do you think uh, tax arbitration like uh, the one in Portugal could be a good thing for countries to implement? And if yes, how to preserve neutrality of decisions of uh, such arbitrations? I am not well versed with the tax arbitration system in Portugal. The arbitration that I uh, focus on is investment treaty arbitration, but let's focus on the concept. So we have alternative dispute resolution, right? Uh, in addition or as alternative yeah, to litigation with tax authorities, you may choose to go to arbitration rather than to courts. So the concept would be that you as a taxpayer, uh, as a aggravated party, um, can appoint one, one out of three arbitrators. The same can be done by uh, tax authorities. So we have two arbitrators already, and the third one is chosen usually by, by those two, or it can be decided by, by, by law differently, but that's usually the, the case. I mean, think, think about it a bit. In a court, Usually, judges have more cases that they can deal with. 
I don't know in which country in the world they will say, I don't have enough work. Okay. Uh, like look at the average time of deciding the case decisively in Italy. It can be 10 to 20 years, the same in yeah. India. Come on, like people can die during that time and never get uh, money back. Justice, yeah. Uh, so that's, you know, the, 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 the judgment will go backwards because from the day of law that you interpret, the law should be interpreted like that, but you wait 10 to 20 years. In arbitration, the principle of efficiency, the principle of efficiency is very important. So arbitrators will decide which procedure, if possible, to choose between different procedure. If one procedure, like which, which rules, how to approach the question about merits to, to, to make the to make the speed uh, possible, uh, to, to, to decide as fast as possible without using quality, of course, and we, without, without overlooking any evidence. Uh, so that's argument for yes. Another yes would be if you have list of arbitrators or you can appoint even arbitrator outside the, the, the list and you have a case, highly technical case regarding like whatever, what is one of your favorite rules, Yanis, in, in tax law? Beneficial ownership, we'll talk about that. Yeah, so let's say that there is question about beneficial ownership. Uh, huge case, big money involved, dividend payments from European jurisdiction to another European jurisdiction finally ends in China or in US, whatever, doesn't matter. So you need a person that is well versed with tax treaty interpretation. The best if there is a person that is well versed in beneficial owner. So you choose arbitrator from the list who you know maybe wrote a book about it, maybe has experience about it, maybe was a judge uh, in a foreign state and now is emeritus and as a judge decided such cases. And then the panel composition of arbitrators will be like very reputable highly knowledgeable about the problem that is subject to dispute rather than judges that may with due respect know little about beneficial ownership they will follow argumentation of uh, tax authorities they will have very limited time to read much literature about it and then when you compare the possibility of having right answer in this sense, right interpretation or the quality persuasiveness, I think that the arbitrators may be closer to that than, than judges. And the last question you actually asked at the beginning, how to ensure impartiality, yeah, neutrality. Well, I, I, I think that the same question could be asked regarding judges. We observe very, uh, disturbing trend in the world that judiciary power is subject to more and more pressure from the side of government. Uh, I, that, that I can comment because it's very well known, you know, that in Poland we had a crisis of that. Now with new government, uh, money from recovery fund from, from COVID will be, will be given to Poland only because the new government treated, started to treat seriously that uh, that issue, the division of power and taking pressure from the shoulders of uh, judges, uh, pressure of government. So, so, you know, the question of impartiality is equally relevant for judges. They are arguments saying, well, but with judges, they are appointed for many years. It's different. An arbitrator is appointed only for that case and is appointed by one of the parties. So, of course, they are biased against each other. The same can be biased arbitrators. Well, you know, 
I don't know really. Arbitrators are subject to rules. They can be penalized. Uh, they can be subject to very robust transparency and impartiality aspects. They will have to reveal anything that could compromise them towards parties. And only then they are appointed. It's not like anybody can be arbitrator. Like you work uh, for some company and that company, uh, or uh, you, you got a lot of money from them last year for whatever reason, maybe for some expert opinion, and now you are arbitrator. Of course, you can't be arbitrator in that case. Mm -hmm. So it's all, ab all about right procedures to, to put and apply procedures that will ensure impartiality, neutrality, or arbitrators. But by overall, a rightly designed uh, tax arbitration procedure could be very beneficial for business, for, for tax certainty purposes, for predictability purposes, and the, for quality of case law. And regrettably, I don't know much the success story of the Portuguese tax arbitration uh, case. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Roger, this was uh, like music to my ears. Uh, <laughs> uh, of course, if we speak of beneficial ownership, then uh, we must talk about your book. So uh, would you do a sales pitch? Uh, why would uh, uh, tax professionals need to buy your book? I mean, I wrote, I wrote it uh, based on my uh, research regarding habilitation. So in Poland, to become professor after you are a doctor, you need to have habilitation. And it's very, you know, challenging, very difficult process. So I put really all my efforts by combining my academic skills with my practice uh, to reflect that in the book. Um, the book is, in, I would say, unique in, in, in many ways, although the topic is not unique. You would say, well, why would anybody write a book about beneficial ownership in 2022 and publish it as I did? Because you had many books before. But what I did in my book is that first I presented it from the very practical perspective uh, by indicating huge flows of money via intermediary jurisdictions. So you have three to five jurisdictions in the entire world among around 200 jurisdictions that are uh, responsible for the vast majority of global flows of income. And that huge amounts of income are or can be subject to the scrutiny regarding whether the recipients are beneficial owners. So the topic is very practical. And I was focusing and trying to reflect how those structures are designed, uh, what is the line between abusive versus non-abusive non uh, planning with the use of EU directives, with the use of tax treaties, uh, why uh, we should distinguish between the concept of beneficial ownership and the concept of uh, abuse, why tax authorities, by not distinguishing between them, but combining them, uh, they, they are almost abusing law because in, in many countries to apply GAR or to apply PPT or to apply any anti general anti-abusive rule, you tax authorities are subject to special procedures and taxpayers have additional extra rights. Like in Poland, they can ask the, um, the head of the revenue service for uh, safeguarding opinion, uh, only head of uh, revenue service which is the highest senior level, uh, you know, person in Polish revenue uh, can decide that case, not local authorities, while BO, beneficial owner, can be decided by any local authority, even without much knowledge or zero knowledge or zero experience sometimes about those type of cases or very little. Uh, so that's disturbing. 
Uh, also, the book uh, contains a chapter which is very, I would say it's agnostic in the sense that you can apply it to any rule uh, that is included in tax treaties or EU directives, but mainly tax treaties, namely the canons of interpretation of beneficial ownership. So I go through all general canons of interpretation from the constitutional level through uh, so interpretation in in uh, in line with constitution constitutional principles, then Vienna Convention, OECD documentation, uh, EU law, uh, CJEU case law, and then I extrapolate or if you like this dissect those elements that are unique for BO, but they are equally unique for other concepts, especially concepts that are applied as if they were anti-abusive, but they are not or mm -hmm. concepts that are subject often to aggressive uh, anti-tax avoidance interpretation by tax authorities. Yeah. And also book includes quite many recent and, uh, land, and, and landmark uh, case law. Uh, and, and maybe I will add that the, the publisher uh, was happy with the book and they asked me to write second edition. So we have recently signed a new contract. So there will be new edition mm -hmm. in, in about two years, most likely. Super. I, I, I think really hot topic. And then we can see from the uh, Court of Justice uh, Danish cases, and uh, there's a, actually a wave of uh, national court decisions around Europe about this topic. So re really, really uh, important one. You mentioned uh, you you were also researching Unshell Directive. Uh, so what what was uh, what is your prediction? What will happen to the Unshell Directive and uh, holding companies in general? My, my prediction is that the the proposal was and still is disproportionate to meet its goals, even in light of EU law, but even more in light of tax treaties and uh, investment treaties. So if anything. Uh, happen with that directive it needs to be the, the proposal needs to be redesigned to carve out the effect of the directive uh, in respect of tax treaties in other words you know the 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 the, the project we all know says that if you are shell entity you cannot be benefit from eu directives tax treaties and the last part is really and other treaties with similar outcome or effect, like investment treaties, which is a way too far. You know, this uh, uh, this law cannot uh, reach that far. It's disproportional. It's it's unpredictable. It's too far-reaching. So I think that the EU legislator will focus just on directives. That's the, my hunch number one. And as uh, I think we can hear from different sources public sources is that this directive most likely will be implemented in two phases. Phase number one would be just exchange of tax information uh, that are required to determine the substance requirement, uh, like DAG9. And, and only next step, once countries gather the information, there will be implemented directive with substan substantive rules saying that if you are shell that you uh, entity then you cannot benefit from eu directives and maybe even more tax treaties but i don't think that it will happen now so what will happen for holding companies i, I think in light of unshell nothing will happen <laughs> in the near future once it will be implemented we need to wait 
how uh, what would be the scope, but I think that the scope will be narrowed down significantly. One important uh, project I saw at the Amsterdam University, you were uh, working on designing the tax system for cashless platform-based and technology-driven society. That seems to be an exact formulation of my dream tax system, sort of cashless Netflix uh, where collection is automatic. Do you think that's possible and uh, what needs to happen to have it as a reality? Well, th that's uh, that's the general name for the project, but I was not, uh, I, I did not do that. I focused only on the explainability of AI. Yeah, so I, I really can't answer that question. There are other colleagues uh, at University of Amsterdam that they are focusing on on the aspects of you know cashless tax system, and and so on and so forth. But that wasn't me. Yeah. So. So, but do you think that's possible? I am skeptical here because people. I think that people feel nowadays that with the omnipresence of technology and surveillance. Uh, whether they want it or not, it went so far. They would like to remain, you know, some privacy. And if you make system completely cashless, uh, every payment you make will be registered. Mm -hmm. And you don't know, today you may have good government, which is benevolent, tomorrow it may be hostile. And if you, especially if you become uh, very vocal in some area sensitive to government and you are strong in that, maybe you are you know, vocal professor of tax law about it and new government doesn't like you and they can track every payment you did. I don't know. I think that the, that there will be a resistance from the side of society to make the system completely cashless. And also with the cybersecurity problems nowadays, again, I will not use the name, name of a country, but we know that there is one country in the world famous with cybersecurity attacks everywhere. If you have completely cashless system, everything is in, in, in some kind of IT system, then it's, you are also more vulnerable towards such attacks. Uh, no matter how good counter systems you have, there is always other side that's trying to develop system that can trick your system. So cybersecurity will be issue here. Uh, it would need to go hand in hand with secure such cashless tax systems. I think it was Bulgaria or some other country that there was a, a, big, a big problem or leak of information from because of cyber attack. And I'm not, I cannot recall now exactly the country. I, I think that was Bulgaria. Uh, and there will be more like that. And, you know, we have uh, quantum computers subject to dynamic developments. Uh, the question is whether they will be useful or not. How? Uh, and which country would be the first to have the advanced quantum computing technology? Uh, if not very friendly country, then all securities that we know uh, in banks, in other accounts will be easily dismantled by quantum computers. So I, I think that there are you know, many, many things to, to address to make that cashless tax system uh, successful both on the societal side and on the technological side. I think we are not there yet. You mentioned the AI. What aspects of AI did you study? Uh, uh, and uh, do you see uh, 
some substantial advancements uh, in this respect regarding tax authorities. Yeah, I think that tax authorities do apply uh, and, and implement uh, AI quite a lot recently. And uh, I focus only on one element of the so-called explainability, which is the concept requ requiring from tax authorities uh, to deploy and apply AI, which is explainable. What does it mean explainable here? Is a dynamic notion. Explainable is a relative to to whom you want to explain. You would you would explain something differently to your four-year-old daughter than to your colleague. The same to your grandmother. So in that case, my research focuses on different groups of stakeholders with taxpayers at the forefront. So if you have AI technology allowing tax authorities to detect tax fraud, or uh, and that detection will translate directly into punishing taxpayer, then, they, then the question is, uh, can taxpayer understand how AI picked him up or not? Because it's black box, yeah? deep neural network or generative AI, which is not explainable yet. Uh, so my claim in the research is that Fundamental human rights, like right to privacy, uh, equality of arms in dispute with tax authorities, the principle of proportionality, principle of certainty and predictability of tax law, constitutional principles, require that AI, uh, as applied by tax authorities, must be to a sufficient, what does it mean sufficient, of course, sufficient extent explainable. So taxpayer needs to understand and then agree or disagree with the outcome. If cannot understand, if if taxpayer is only said AI said it, then you will have uh, problems. Slovak uh, constitutional call, court stated that AI must be explainable. The same High Court in the, in the Hague in the famous child benefits scandal uh, in the Netherlands, but mm -hmm. courts in US are more lenient, I would say, towards application of AI by public authorities, not necessarily tax authorities, by public authorities, compass system to de de detect the probability of uh, criminality in US. Um, so different legal culture may require different level of explainability. And I also uh, explain in the research that explainability will benefit not only taxpayers, but also tax authorities and companies uh, developing and selling AI, because if a system is explainable, you can faster and more precise detect internal errors in the system. And every uh, AI system is a bunch of codes, line of codes, right? And if you, you have millions of lines of code in the complex AI systems, then the chances that there are thousands of errors are very high. And if system is completely black box, unexplainable, it will be difficult to detect those errors early on. Usually they are detected after something completely ridiculous, unheard of, unimaginable for human being happen. Example of a cryptocurrency platform operating in Singapore in which, you know, at some point during the night, prices of printers uh, dropped down by 1000 times. Uh, it was error, a, error of the AI system, but uh, and and there was one person online that bought thousands of printers for for those price. And the question was, was that contract valid? 
sell purchase agreement. It was subject to 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 you know to dispute, and uh, there was, a, as a matter of fact, human being that failed. There was an IT guy who fell asleep during the night and forget to update the system manually. And because of the lack of update, the system came up with that error. But you as human being will never change the price in your shop of printer from $1,000 to $1. But AI yeah. can because it's just a bunch of algorithms. No matter how smart, uh, how self, you know, how, how in-depth they are. So, yeah, so I think that explainability is important. Um, so short pitch, just yesterday evening, uh, I and a group of 10 other researchers, I was principal investiga investigator of the project. We got uh, information that our article is uh, uh, accepted to be published by, I think, one of the most prestigious AI and law journals in the world, which, which is the name AI and law, <laughs> uh, published by Springer, I think. Uh, so in a couple of months, I can also share that article with you. It's an article written by 11 scholars, including me. Uh, in uh, collaboration with Buenos Aires Tax Authorities. It is a reminiscence of my collaboration with Amsterdam Center uh, for Tax Law. So I'm, I'm very proud uh, of it and look forward to that publication. It's, it's exactly about the explainability of AI in tax administration. You're doing a great job. By the way, about Singapore, a small question. Uh, I, I understand you studied Singapore tax system. Uh, what, what do you think is the key of their success? Uh, Singapore now is one of the uh, uh, richest countries in the world. So is there uh, uh, some features in the tax system uh, to be uh, part of this uh, success story? Yes, again, I cannot say too much, but uh, Singapore <clears throat> is very unique because it's city and country at the same time. So it's smaller than the smallest European states, Lithuania, Łotwa, and Estonia, as example. So they mm. can do, in a way, much more, also because they are not in EU, so they are not subject to so many restrictions like state, state aid and others. They are not subject to all, you know, the waves of uh, new legislation. And they use the, the, its size to be very agile, to be very focused on, to be very business driven, to be very focused on attracting and retaining investments, to ensure stability, predictability of tax system and investments. To, they, they manage to implement very smart uh, tax incentives that attract investors with profile that exactly matches the size of Singapore. So they are not attracting big greenfield projects, but they are attracting uh, tech companies. They are attracting uh, uh, financial companies, holding companies uh, like you know Hong Kong. They are in competition with each other. I think they respond very well to uh, different international reforms. They are. They have. Uh, a great uh, contextual intelligence, so to speak. They know where they are in the region, how to position themselves in the region, with whom to enter into bilateral and multilateral collaboration. Uh, for uh, So this, this entire legal and tax Singapore system, I think, is interwoven with, around and with uh, having in mind economic prosperity. Uh, and, 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 and to go into details to indicate 
like you know particular provisions would be difficult for me i was there five years i left singapore five years ago it would be i think also inappropriate but it gives you a flavor yeah like they are able to design uh, tax in incentives in a way that perfectly matches expectations of the biggest investors in sectors that are happy to establish regional headquarters there that's how it works and they don't need to ask uh, they don't need to ask you commission for permission they, they are uh, strong politically strong di diplomatically globally so they all use all those leverages so you think in the in european union it's not possible to overtake some of their best features of the tax system well it's not about tax system only it's about trade and investment too so eu commission with the okay. treaty of uh, of lisbon overtook the power from from member states to decide about uh, international trade and investment you have collapse of investment treaty protection, investment treaty arbitration in the EU after Achmia. Something like that would not happen in Singapore and nobody will require them to, to follow it. So the certainty, legal certainty is on different level. Of course, your, your question is valid in the sense that many tax incentives in EU would need to comply with state aid rules, with, uh, with other EU rules. You would need to notify the many rules to EU, uh, to EU commission, I mean whereas nothing like that happens in a third country, but you have a huge benefit to be a member states, not least military uh, security, like right now, geostrategically, it's absolutely number one, not tax law, but to feel secure, mm -hmm. to feel that you are part of something uh, bigger. If you are uh, not big enough, strong enough, uh, wealthy enough, and you, you don't have a military big enough, you want to be very close ally with someone that is. And uh, that's the power of the EU. So I would not trade that for anything. <clears throat> and when I think about taxes, I think, uh, especially during the last several years that, you know, mature in me, that I think it as a part of something bigger. And I try to look, it's this global tax policy approach, I try to look on the geoeconomic dynamics between states and uh, to be empathetic to a given state, right? Like what, why the state have so many tax incentives? Maybe there are good reasons behind it rather than say, no, it's bad, you know? And I will, uh, I will not be afraid of uh, companies uh, having more than 750 million. Well, I am because they, th their position towards some countries may translate directly on the economic situations on, on those countries. Everything is interconnected. You cannot treat uh, big multinationals in separation from countries. They invest uh, in those countries, so there is interconnection. And tax systems should enhance a good connection between them that will benefit uh, their economic trades and society rather than only uh, state budget by inflow of money. Roger, uh, we could talk for hours uh, and uh, I, I feel we need the second episode of this podcast <laughs> to, to continue, but uh, the time is limited. I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. And uh, as always, at the end of my episode, uh, there is a simple question about which we started to talk uh, during uh, the discussion about Viktor Frankl's book about uh, meaning of life. What uh, would be your answer? Yes, to, to find the best three things in life that uh, you you love and you feel unique in that love towards uh, other people, towards your family, and uh, to find uh, one thing in your life 
uh, that only you can do nobody else in this world in that way that you could put your heart into it because then you will be driven by love and being driven by love in life i think is one of the most beautiful and pure things uh, and saying that there is no one universal meaning of life everybody has own meaning everybody needs to discover the, the, that meaning for themselves i think uh, your audience felt that you are doing this with your heart and, uh, and now uh, will there will be much more of your followers and, and uh, fans so i really wish uh, you Uh, success with your scientific research and uh, we'll, we'll be looking forward to to see more of your work so thank you for for your time thank you so much Janice. it's been a pleasure